Welcome in to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Today is a very interesting show, folks. What happens with cold cases? A lot of times, those cold cases go by the wayside and they don't get solved. Sometimes, you get a brave person that'll come forward and will give information that'll get that cold case solved. Other times, it takes forensics. It takes hard science to come up with an answer for those cold cases. We have an interesting story today with our guest, Maureen Boyle, in that some of that science, someone brave coming forward, and a combination of some things, get the job done and get justice for one young lady who would have gone by the wayside and might have even been forgotten uh, to the the stories of history or, or just to history in general. And it would have been a sad story had it not been for the courage of some people that we're going to talk about today. Maureen Boyle is an award-winning journalist who had been a crime reporter in New England for decades. She earned a number of national and regional awards for her writing and reporting, including being named New England Journalist of the Year three times. She's the author of three books, including Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer, which was honored by the Public Safety Writers Association. She's currently the director of the journalism program at Stonehill College and lives in New England with her family. Today, we're talking about the book that I had the pleasure of sitting down and reading this weekend. The book is called Child Last Seen, The Search for Patty Desmond. Let's bring in right now, Maureen Boyle. Hi, Maureen. How are you? Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Doing good. Doing good. Uh, let's, uh, Let's start this off slow. And I want to start this off slow. Tell us a little bit about... Patty Desmond as a person. She only lived 15 years. So this this is really uh, a case of, a, a tragic case at that because she, she died at such a young, young age. Um, and, and she really was from a, a background that that none of us would, would ever wish upon every, anyone. She, she's, she's kind of a forgotten person. Uh, even in, in her young 15 years, it didn't seem like she had a lot going for her. Well, she was um, 15. Her uh, her father died when she was uh, young, uh, and she was raised by her widowed mother. She was one of six kids. She was the youngest uh, of the girls, three boys, three girls. Um, and, you know, her mother worked very, very hard during a period of time when women, when they were working, were ma- making far less than men. Uh, Patty was... And as you noted, 15 when she went missing, it was 1965. So, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, we have to uh, think about what life was like in 65 as opposed to what it's like today. Um, there weren't a lot of opportunities for uh, for women, for uh, Patty's mother in particular, for, for good work. But she did work a whole variety of jobs, whether it was waitressing and working at ice cream stands or house cleaning or whatever she could could to pay the rent and put food on the table for her children. Um, Patty was uh, one of the youngest in the family. The oldest were all out of the house uh, by 1965. um, One of her sisters, who she was the closest to, had been married and was living uh, a few miles away. Patty was, some people described her as a little bit lost. Um, she was bullied 
when she was much younger. Yeah. She was not um she was not part of the in crowd. Um in her high school, there were no yearbook pictures of her um, that were identifiable. Um, and, you know, what's really sad is that even to this day, there's a number of people in the community who didn't even know about this case, which is, I think, an extra um, tragic point. Yeah. But um, it was 1965. Uh, Patty was um, going out or was was dating um an individual who is 19. Now that age difference, those number of years, when you're much older, um, doesn't make a difference. But you're talking about someone who's 15 and someone who's 19. That's a big difference, both in maturity um, and uh, life views. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patty was a sophomore in high school. The person that she was going out with was someone with a criminal record. He was married. And he had a child. He was out of school. Um, so he was picking her up and giving her alcohol, things like that. Um, at least that's according to people that uh, knew them both uh, during that period of time. Um, Patty was, someone might, might describe her as being a little bit lost. Now she was looking for something. And this individual, um, Conrad Eugene Miller was what, what some people would, especially women, would describe as bad boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a certain look. Uh, one person described him as kind of looking like James Dean at that time. Okay. And one of the pictures of uh, one of his mugshots, he does look what, you know, he has that look. Mm-hmm. Um, and for girls, teenage girls of that age, sometimes they're attracted to that quote unquote danger. Um, and then they get over it. Yeah. Um, in Patty's case, she didn't get a chance to get over it because she was killed um, at age uh, 15. She disappeared on a December night. She had an argument with her mother who uh, really did, did not want her seeing uh, Miller. Uh, she snuck out of the house. And she got in a car with Miller and some of his friends. Okay. Miller dropped off his friends um, and p- drove off with Patty. And that was the last time that she was seen alive. Um, he claimed that uh, he dropped her off near near a friend's house, one of her friend's houses. But no one else could verify that. And her, uh, her friend said she never arrived there. Uh, police long had... Uh, considered him a suspect in the crime, uh, in her disappearance, and possible murder, but they couldn't prove it. Uh, there was some stories circulating that she was that she ran away. Um, that could not be proven. There was a lot of false sightings, um, and and obviously they were false because it, it wasn't her. Yeah. Um, police uh, at that time investigated the disappearance. Uh, however, keep in mind in 1965, there was a number of teenagers who went who ran away mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. during that period of time. And it was a different, whole different time uh, when someone was reported missing. It didn't, uh, their names did not go into a national database like it does today. Um, there were no uh, alerts out there, no Amber alerts uh, for missing children. 
it, it, all of the tools that we have today that may have helped find her back then were not in place then. It was just your standard. You have a, a missing persons report. Police uh, interviewed all the people who may have seen her and then tried to piece together the story and hopefully find her. Uh, police, both the state police and the uh, local police, long suspected that she had been killed. Mm-hmm. But now, they Mar- couldn't prove it. Maureen, let me, ask you, yeah. let me ask you some questions before we advance a little bit here in the story. With, with Patty, um, she felt the need to get out of the house and go meet Conrad with these friends of his. And, and it was this overwhelming need to get out and, and go hang with him. But she didn't feel an affinity for these friends of Conrad's at all. She didn't hang with them at all. It was just the fact that she wanted to be with Conrad. But wasn't well, there, is that, is that true or no? Well, they were all hanging out together, okay. that type of thing. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was but they, a, that but the feeling wasn't... Today, a friend good. The, yeah, the friend feeling good. wasn't mutual with that group of friends, right? They didn't really look at Patty as, as you know... They didn't look at her warmly, correct? No, they, they, they were not... Um, she, she was not attracted, did not appear to be tra- attracted to his friends. At least that was my feeling, okay. my, uh, the information that I had. So, so they... It really, it was just, she's, she wants to get out of the house to see Conrad, but there's, um, there's this, this feeling that she's really on her own, that she's alone, that even when she's with Conrad, there's a sense of loneliness. There's a sense of, and maybe I'm reading into it a little bit, but there's a sense that, that she's really on an island because with her family, they love her, but at the same time, They'd love her if they if she would kind of mold herself to what they expect her to be. Well, it's you know the, we we have to remember um, the financial situation that the family was in at that time, um, and they, they loved her and wanted the best for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there wasn't much more that they could do at, okay. at that time. You know, there's. It was just Patty and her brother who were left at home at that time. Her mother was working very hard and trying to um, to keep an eye on both of on both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and because of the argument that the mother had with Patty, that really does show that the mother was, that her mother really was trying to keep her daughter safe and keep her away from uh, an element that she knew that would have been out of her daughter's control. So now the father had an issue with Conrad as well. And didn't they butt heads before? No, the, fa- the father had died a number of years, way, oh, way, okay. way, a okay. number of years uh, earlier. Oh, okay. Uh, he had uh, died. I believe it was uh, Patty was seven. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. He had, I, he had gotten in a, um, an argument with uh, a family member uh, with, with his brother and he hit his head on a on cement and uh, suffered a, a head injury and died. Um, died of that on his way to the hospital. Oh, okay. Who yeah. who was it that had the issue with Conrad that was arguing with him? Well, there was a number of people when he was uh, when they were young children. Uh, some of her uh, 
some of the other kids in the neighborhood where Conrad grew up would uh, get in our, uh, I wouldn't say arguments. Uh, they had told me that Conrad would bully them okay. and would fight them, things like that. So I think that's what you might be thinking of. Yeah, some of yeah. the kids that were um, felt that they were they were bullied uh, when they were young by him, and so that he Conrad had a reputation early on in his in his life, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, when he was younger. That you know a lot of the kids tried to uh, stayed away from him, or the parents told the kids to stay away from him because just because of how he was reacting uh, to to them. Do you feel like Patty had an indication that things were eventually going to go wrong with Conrad, or did she feel like she had some sort of a future with him? Did she want some sort of future with him before well, that you know, fateful night? When, when, when girls are 15 years old, mm-hmm. they don't. They are in, very often are in what I call la-la land. Okay. And they don't, um, they, they're always looking for a happy ending, and that's probably what she was thinking that here was someone who was paying attention to her because she was not a beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of girls, they grow into their beauty. Yep. Uh, but uh, she wasn't, and people did not describe her as, as beautiful, but she was looking for some someone, someone to love her, someone to pay attention to her. And this is someone who was paying attention to her, um, perhaps the wrong type of Attention. Well, obviously, the wrong type of attention. Uh, but at fifteen, uh, many girls don't get it. You know, a uh, few years of maturity, and she probably would have um, recognized that this was not the type of attention that she should have. But at fifteen, uh, girls are very, very um, they're naive uh, okay. to uh, what people's intentions are. And, and that that was how this this happens. Okay. And I think her mother may probably recognize that. And that's why she was trying to warn her, her, her daughter to stay away from him. OK. Now, I tell you what, right now we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about what motive Conrad might have had to, to kill Patty because she's a 15 year old girl. And, and let's face it, Conrad's married, has a child. Um, it's not like Patty would squander this relationship she has with him because it doesn't sound like she really cares. As long as she's getting attention, she's fine. And it sounds like Conrad doesn't mind giving her attention, whatever attention she's getting. So where does it all go wrong? I'll ask you that question when we come back. Our guest is Maureen Boyle. The book is Child Last Seen, The Search for Patty Desmond. We have, a, we have a link to it in the description of this program. And I want you to go out and get it, folks. It's a really good book. Really good book. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the players around Conrad, uh, a little bit about his friends and what his friends are involved in. We'll talk a little bit about how the news gets out that Conrad's involved in this killing. We'll talk about that as well. When we come back, you're listening to the best in uh, true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. The book is Child Last Seen, The Search for Patty Desmond. Our guest is Maureen Boyle, the author of that book. When we last left you, we were talking about uh, Patty Desmond. And that fateful night when she is uh, sneaks out of the house, she wants to be with Conrad Miller, 
who is her married boyfriend, has a, a child at home. Uh, she sneaks out of the house uh, despite the, um, let's just say, the disappointment and uh, and the objections objections yes strong objections thank you maureen of her of her mother um and decides that she's going to go out with uh, conrad and her friends Uh, but conrad separates himself and patty from the group now there is and i don't know if you want to give this point away uh from the book maureen but were there alternate plans for patty with the group um, well, he was, he had told police later, he was going to try to fix her up with one of his friends and his friends, of course, uh, knew nothing about that. They but, didn't. Well, no, they did not. Okay. Was that a surprise to his friends when, when they found this out and how did they find that out? Well, I, I don't think that he, uh, the police mentioned that to his friends. Uh, what would happen after while she went missing, they did go back to talk to his friends just to get the timeline of where they were and, you know, when he dropped them off. Um, and then they never saw them, saw him again. They saw him like briefly when they drove by, but they, they didn't see uh, Patty later on that night. Now they had car trouble in, in that type of thing, but they, oh, did, okay. they knew they did not say anything to police about uh, any plans to hook up with Patty um, later on that night, it was Conrad who took Patty alone to, um, believe to a, a coal mine area where uh, some people would go to drink or hang out or make out that type of thing. And you know, when he took Patty to that area, um, he told police, and this is from him. Okay. He told police that she told him that she was pregnant and that she had a boyfriend and she was going to get married to the boyfriend or he'd say, we're going to take off together. And he was uh, nervous about it. He didn't want her to quote unquote pin it on him because someone else had tried to um, pin a, a, a pregnancy on him. Uh, and in one case, it was his child. Um, and then another case, he was paying. Uh, it was clear later on that he had been paying child support on the second child. Ah, okay. So, um, you know, he's, he was married. He had a, a young wife um, and one child. And then another child that he uh, at one point was paying a child support for. So he's paying that support on another child. Is he in Dutch with the wife already? Is that the case? And and he doesn't well, his, want... His wife was also very, very young. His wife was 16. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. So she was very young. She was also very naive. Um, you know, as girls at 15, 16 are. Um, so Conrad has a bit of a problem with dating outside of what should be his age range. I mean, he's dating young girls. Yeah, he is. He is dating with some uh, girls that are, at least in you know, how we would view it today, far too, uh, much younger than than he should. Because the norm today is someone's nineteen, uh, they shouldn't be dating high school girls, um, so if especially if they're not in high school. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, he has, uh, told police at the time that 
uh, Patty told him that she was pregnant um, and he left with her and um, she wanted to him to drop her off uh, at her friend's house um, or take her to her friend's house. He dropped her off near a volunteer fire department, which was maybe like a block or so away from a friend's house and drove off. And that was the last time that he saw her. That was his story okay. that he told. Uh, he told uh, the police that the next uh, next couple of days, um, as they were initially investigating her disappearance, uh, he told her friend that. He told everyone that, that that's what happened initially. Mm-hmm. Um, much later, um, he made some veiled uh, suggestions that he had killed her. Um, to some of his friends um, saying that they would never find her. Um, There was some veiled suggestion that she was in the mine. Uh, uh, And his friends all thought when they heard it, that it was just a bunch of drunken talk because he was not sober when he was saying it. Uh, They said, and that um, they just didn't believe him. Mm -hmm. You know, he wouldn't kill someone. Uh, you know, it just didn't make sense. They thought it was just a, a blowhard at that time. Sure. Um, but, you know, th- those type of stories did get back to the police, um, including, you know, a few years after Patty went missing, the state police um, reopened the case at the request of her sister. Uh, and they re-interviewed some of the same people and as well as some additional people. Uh, but, they all got to this this one barrier. They didn't know where Patty was. They couldn't prove that she was dead. They had no body. They really couldn't arrest him uh, because what if they arrest him and go, the case goes to trial and he's acquitted? Because mm-hmm. uh, they really did not have enough enough evidence at that time right. uh, to, to to win a conviction. And of course, they they couldn't retry him if he's acquitted. So they the case really was cold after um, they, after the the, the mid seventies until um, the eighties when someone stepped forward, and that was the real break in the case. And that's really what the highlight is for most of these cold cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're solved by a number in a number of ways forensics dna today mm-hmm. um and people yep. people coming forward with evidence and very often um it's the human element uh, people coming forward that really breaks the cases uh we are so wrapped up today in dna that you know dna is going to solve everything Mm-hmm. And while that is a tool, it you do need people to steer um, investigators to the right area um, in a number of the cases, um, bringing the suspect to a particular spot, um, tying the suspect to the victim, uh, all of those additional vic- uh, things, not just relying on DNA. And you, you'll see that in a number of cases that are even solved with DNA when you dig a little bit deeper into those cases, there's more that investigators already had. And the 
DNA was as they say is just is the cherry on top. Right. In not in all the cases, but in, in many of them, they 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 had a suspect. Right. Uh, you know, we had Stuart Gibbon on last week. We were talking uh, about the different minutia of an investigation. We were talking about that. You know, when you consider DNA and talking about DNA, you think about how young DNA really is in the science of, of DNA. 1987 in the, the early 90s is, is really the, the birth of DNA. And you think about it as a science. And really, it was considered junk science in the 1990s. Uh, and and how now we rely on it so heavily. But, you know, you think about fingerprints and, and dental impressions and, and, and you know, forensic, or forensic uh, sciences and, and, and even, as you're saying, tips and people. People are so important and, and, and all these different things, even down to pollen and, and different things to tie, and fibers, everything to pull these cases together. It's so important. And there are so many things that go into an investigation to to pull everything together. And and then after I talked to Stuart and then reading your book, Child Last Seen, it's amazing what was pulled together to finally get Conrad on this case. And, and that's that's one of the reasons why I was so fascinated with with the story. Um, I had come upon the story when I was um working on my second book, The Ghost, the, uh, the Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer, mm-hmm. which is a book that spanned um, two locations, one in um, Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, and, in, and it ended in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Um, and I was in uh, Pennsylvania doing some wrap-up work on the ghost, and the one of the prime investigators in uh, Patty Desmond's case, uh, Danny McKnight, uh, I had interviewed him for the ghost, and he mentioned this case. And he also had all of his case files, Mm -hmm. which was very helpful and provided a good background Mm -hmm. uh, on the case. Um, And what was surprising about the case was how few people knew about it, how few stories at the time there were, uh, they, there were a number once uh, once the case was concluded uh, in the 80s, but not uh, initially. And I was really taken by the work that went into it initially and how all of the investigators really hit a brick wall uh, because they could only take it so far. Uh, they had no crime scene. They had no body. They had they had suspicions and very good suspicions. Yeah. Um, when, it, when it also comes to, we're talking about DNA and how, how relative, and I know I'm skipping around here, but how no, young okay. DNA is. Yeah. And I recall as a reporter uh, being in a courtroom with a prosecutor going step by step by step um, in, in an initial hearing with a judge to get the DNA admitted and then going step by step by step with a jury to explain what DNA was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, and the uh, defense attorneys essentially calling it junk science. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it was, you know, going with the numbers and, you know, with the numbers really confused jurors. Um, 
And and today we just shrug it off to, oh, yeah, DNA proved this. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was not the case. In each of those cases, this was in the um, late 80s, early 90s. uh, Each of those cases, DNA was not universally accepted. And they did have to really school both judges and uh, jurors on why DNA should be admitted. And here we are, you know, how many years later, and we are just all just assume DNA is found everywhere. In yeah. every cold case, the first thing people will say in any forum is, you know, but what about DNA? DNA can solve it. And, you know, even today, sometimes there isn't enough DNA right. to, um, or the or it's degraded so much that they, they can't use it. Right. Uh, and back then, even if you had DNA, they needed very large samples. Exactly. I was just uh, as, opposed to, yep. as opposed to now. And, you know, sometimes the samples would get destroyed um, during the testing and they had to make sure that they had enough of the sample so the defense could also test the sample. Mm-hmm. It was a, a whole different world back then. Yeah, and and skipping around a little bit, as you said, um, the the amount of DNA you needed, and and we're talking about now. By the time we get to, um, by the time we get to actually prosecuting Conrad, we're talking what eighties? Yes, we're talking the eighties. Okay, so you needed a significant amount of DNA, which by the time they they start to get to finding remains of patty there's there's not enough dna per se correct no 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 so this is not a a dna case this is a case where and it is very much a building block type of case Mm -hmm. where they are piecing together um, different elements that eventually create the uh, the house of uh, of the case, where they've got the the foundation. Um, this is not. It, it's a forensic case to in some regards, but it's m- more in in terms of the discovery of Patty as opposed to uh, the DNA uh, aspect of it. Um, this but, is but really police work. That, that solved it along with people, with someone coming forward. But it's intriguing. It's intriguing in the fact that uh, of what they had to work with. And I don't want to spoil that. And yeah. Again, I want to leave that for the reader uh, because, because of the fact that it was just that one tip, that one tip that sent the snowball in motion, so to speak, and it got it to roll into a snow boulder and it got it bigger and bigger and bigger. And that, that sent police to where they needed to go to start to find Patty's remains and get them enough to get Conrad prosecuted. Um, Otherwise Conrad had the the perfect crime. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yeah. He he did have the perfect crime because there was no body. Mm -hmm. um, And there was a lot of suspicion and, you know, let's face it. He he did get get away with it for, for decades. Uh, But, but it it does. and, And that's, we have to remember the importance of people in all of these cases, whether it's the investigators, witnesses, people with tips. Um, that is what solves all these cases. 
uh, along with the science. Mm-hmm. But people, that human element is what pushes and directs investigators into certain areas. Uh, if they have bad information, well, at least the investigators can look at in that avenue and decide, no, we're not going to go that way. Um, if they have good information, guess what? That can make the case and that can help investigators find the evidence that is out there because they know where they're they're looking. And that was the case here where they were able to get to that cru- crucial point and everything else that they had from 1965 on then all fell into place. It all made sense. And that was um, that that was very, very important. And it also speaks to in this case, it also speaks to um, people taking that moral step of doing the right thing. It can be you know, we have this. Currently, this quote unquote, no snitching culture mm-hmm. where people will say and, and this isn't new. This has been going on for years and years and years. Right. Um, but even then. Uh, there was, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't tell on, on family, you don't tell on friends, you don't tell, tell on anyone, you just, you know, mind your own business. And that was the thinking in some circles back then. And that is why the case went unsolved for so long until someone came forward and said, wait, this is, uh, this is what happened. Now, Maureen, let me let me ask you this real quick. Now, is it a matter of protecting family or is it a matter of fear and reprisal? Because when you look at Conrad's crime record throughout the decades, when you look at his unabashed criminal record, when you look at the fact that he's not ashamed to go after someone, when he's not, you know, the man has no conscience, let's face it. When you look at his when you look at his criminal record, is it a matter of fear or is it a matter of protection when it comes to not coming forward and let's let's call it uh, giving information, not snitching, but giving information when it comes to this case? Is it a matter of fear of reprisal or is it a matter of protecting a loved one? Um, I think in this case it was t- uh, a matter both, okay. because there was a number of people who who knew and didn't come forward at that time. And in one case, it may have been protection. And with some of the other people, it was fear. So there's, there's, there's both. And, you know, in in all the case, all cases today, well, not all, most of the cases today, when people aren't coming forward, it is often um, fear of reprisal, Mm -hmm. especially if it's a stranger. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, you know, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. I don't need people coming at at me. Or if it's, you know, someone that's close to them, they don't want to get them in trouble. Mm -hmm. So there's a feeling that they need to protect them. But that's something that's been going on for for decades upon decades upon decades. It's it's not new in this case. But in this case, this is a um, a murder that happened in a very small community in Western Pennsylvania. And so this is not where you would normally think of, uh, of a lot of secrets when it came to a murder, because everyone knows everyone, mm-hmm. um, you know, in small towns, small towns have secrets, but very often in small towns, everyone knows the secret. Uh, they just don't, 
discuss a secret outside of the small town. Yeah. Um, in this case, everyone had suspicions, uh, but police couldn't get anyone who had direct knowledge uh, or knowledge that could lead them to um, direct evidence that would tie him to the murder until until the 80s. I wonder, you know, we talk about small towns having their secrets, but then we also talk about the, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to use it, Maureen, the forgettability of, of Patty. And you look at modern day in that area, and there's a little bit of your book, and I'm not spoiling anything by saying this, that, that you know, as much as time remembers, time forgets. And yes, and, and that's that's one of the very sad things. And that's one of the reasons why I wind up doing some story uh, stories about cases that no one knows about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to do uh, a book about, you know, some cases that are popular that where everyone knows about it and they want to know more about it. Yeah. But what about the cases that are like the, the hidden cases there that um, with victims that no one knows their names? And I'm always intrigued by those stories and what the uh, the families had to endure, what the um, police uh, investigators had to uncover, mm-hmm. uh, and also what communities um, had to had to deal with. And in all cases, often the, especially with smaller towns, um, murders affect everyone in the community uh, to one extent or another. Uh, Those that are in that direct circle, and then there's that ripple effect um, in a community. There was, you know, that with with the death of uh, the killing of the Saxonburg police chief. Um, And in this case with Patty, there wasn't that much attention to her paid to her disappearance uh, in the public eye, even though a number of people knew that she was missing. Uh, but that is one of the reasons why I thought it was important to tell her story and what happened to her mm-hmm. so that she's not forgotten that, you know, she's not, she was not a famous actress. She was not, you know, a famous artist. Uh, she was just she was a teenage fifteen year old girl who would who never got a chance to grow up, and that's that's what I find was uh, one of the saddest things of how sometimes people can be anonymous in life and in death, and I really hope to make sure that their lives are are noted that people will realize they mattered. And that is what's what's important in all of these cases. We have to remember that the victims matter. Yeah. That the families matter. Um, and that's, you know, and only by looking at these cases and um, exploring these cases, hopefully only by doing that can we perhaps prevent other cases, similar cases um, in the future by understanding how, a killer could walk amongst the community for, for decades. Uh, although in Miller's case, he had been in and out of prison, so he wasn't uh, walking free much of the time. Right. But how can someone get away with murder? Uh, and 
what does that say about your own safety in a community, even a small community where you feel safe? Yeah. Yeah. When we always think that it's if you're in a large city like Boston or New York or Memphis or Chicago, that's where you are um, unsafe, uh, that you're in danger. So you're always on alert. But what about in the small uh, towns uh, throughout the country, of which there are many that, you know, when the, when the sun sets and can people hear you scream in the, in the wilderness? True. You know, you bring up a very good point. There's a very good tale or a very good moral to the story that, that you bring up with Patty. But I wonder to myself, as I read this book, who keeps Patty's name alive more? And I, I don't know that you're going to like the choices I give you here, but I'm going to give you the choice. Is it the remaining family that's still alive of Patty's, or is it actually Conrad Miller? Because it, and it's in, in a notorious way, and and I'll and I'll give you these 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 two examples, and you tell me whether it's good or bad or indifferent. Um, you know, Conrad Miller still exists; he's still around. He's notorious, not not infamous, but notorious. The name is still connected to Patty. Um, and people have this fascination with killers. So that name still exists to Patty, even though Patty's life is very tragic. Yet, well, you, oh, yeah, that, that's true in, in any, um, in any murder case, the victim and the killer will always be forever uh, tied together. Mm -hmm. Uh, in any case, you know, OJ Simpson, it will always be tied to the victims, yeah. um, in, Although when it comes to serial killers with multiple victims, unfortunately, the killer's name is more um, well-known than the victims, which I think is very sad. Mm -hmm. But they will always be tied together in, in that regard. But I think it is important for a community at large to keep her memory alive. Her family is, you know, it's been years. She only has, you know, two siblings left alive. Uh, her mom has since passed. That's when they're gone. I hope that the community remembers her mm -hmm. uh, and not just remember the the person who killed her. And that that's what I think is uh, the most important thing. The I, I hope that his name fades and her name remains. Right. Yeah. Well, I would think there should be some, and I'm not trying to be judgmental here, but I, I would think there should be some shame in the community because here was a, a girl you overlooked for, for 15 years of her life, a girl you let go by the wayside while she was missing. And then in modern day, 2023, a girl you forgot about again, you know? Well, yeah, well back then in 65, um, people knew she was missing. Um, and in the circle of friends and family that she knew, you know, she was known. Mm -hmm. uh, but but in, any, in any community, you know, even in the smallest community, uh, people are sectioned off into their own lives, into their own groups. So there may be people who knew of her 
or went to school with her, but we're not in the same circle of friends with her uh, or the same circle of her family. Um, that's that. That's just, uh, I think, uh, normal. And I, I don't think that there should be any shame in the community because that is a very um, giving community. That whole area is people will step up and help uh, an individual at the drop of a hat. They are very, um, very open hearted. Okay. Um, I suspect um, Patty's mother was very, very proud and would not have sought out extra help. Um, so there, there, there is also that, you know, when you have a community with individuals who are, are very proud and don't like sharing a lot of their heartache that they have, um, and given that time period of, um, in, the, in the 60s, I don't, even in the schools, uh, the school systems were different back then. So I don't think that the community has anything to answer to, so to speak, okay. uh, because that was how things were then. It doesn't mean that it was right, but that's how things were then, where there wasn't, uh, where a missing teenager was considered a runaway, as opposed to something happened to her. And, and Patty, according to the police reports, had run away at least once before. So there was that type of, uh, there wasn't that urgency initially. But have they done anything to memorialize her? Um, no, not, not, not that I'm aware of. Um, so it's, other than her family. Yeah. Um, but but there, there's other... Uh, I think there's other cases of missing children in the area, that greater area within a uh, two-hour drive uh, where they were also looking at missing persons cases, too. Well, I I guess in the interest of all those missing children, there could be something to be done to remember all of them. But, I, you know, to, to me, it seems like a... I don't know, a huge tragedy. You know what I'm saying, Maureen? Yep. It's, yes, it's, yeah. uh, you know. it, it was, it, it's, it's tragic all, all around. Yeah. Um, because you had have a family who uh, perhaps didn't know how to get more attention onto her disappearance. Yeah. Uh, because they weren't, they weren't from, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the a police chief's child or councilman or a selectman or, you know, a town leader's child where there might be more attention paid. We're talking about an average family that was, you know, struggling. And very often there, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of attention paid to those cases. Um, well, in, people, in, in people may remember them years later, but there's a lot of people in the community today who had never heard of this case. In all fairness, too, I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat or anything, yeah. but in all fairness, too, before Adam Walsh, we all didn't know how to deal with missing children either. So that's very true. There, yes. there, there was no network. There was, uh, there was no way to mobilize uh, authorities to to look for for children um, in a timely manner uh, to deal with cases like this either. But in, high, in hindsight, it is always 2020. Yeah. Um, but it's just sad that that area 
I don't know, hasn't done more to remember her, I guess. That's that's just my own personal opinion. But, it, but, it, 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 and it's said, you know, all around that yeah. how, how lives can uh, be lost. And especially when they're really young, you know, that they're, that they're not, um, you don't, other than the family, you don't, they, there doesn't seem to be that big gaping hole in the community. Right. Uh, just uh, one, one last question here for you, Maureen, before we wrap stuff up. Was it ever proven? I know, I, I don't know how much forensic evidence there was, but was it ever proven that, that Patty was pregnant? Um, no, uh, based on the remains, no. Okay. Uh, the book is out there right now, Child Last Seen, The Search for Patty Desmond. We have a link to it in the description of this program. I encourage everyone to go get it and uh, read for yourself. There is some fascinating stuff in there, folks. There's a lot more background on Conrad Miller. I tell you, there's some stuff in there that might make your skin crawl about Conrad Miller. I, uh, I'll i just put it to you that way. If you, if you are into that uh, sort of stuff, as far as criminals go, he has a long resume. We'll put it that way. Uh, yes, he does. Yeah, so there's lots of interesting reading there. There's also some interesting comparative cases in there as well to to uh, Patty Patty's case. Um, Maureen's done her research, folks, and it is in that book, Child Last Seen, The Search for Patty Desmond. Maureen, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is um, a lovely time, and I'm uh, so glad to be able to get the opportunity to talk about the book and to talk about Patty. Well, thank you, Maureen. We appreciate you being on again. And uh, Maureen has other books out there as well. We've got a link to her website. So you can go to her website and check out her other books that are out as well. Uh, we encourage you to pick out her other bo books. Uh, sh she mentioned The Ghost, uh, that also uh, one of the players, uh, you were talking about Detective McKnight as well, right? That, that's yes. in this book. He's in The Ghost. He's, he's also in The Ghost. Uh, he was a a, a regular trooper at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was there at the scene. So um, the ghost the is av available on uh, Marine's website, uh, marineboilwriter.com. We'll have a link to that and shallow graves, which I believe we talked to you about shallow graves five. It was a five years ago already. I know it seems like yesterday. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. You were on the program five years ago. You can check that out in the archives of true crime Tuesday. Uh, we have that up right now, darknessradioshow.com. So Marine, thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Right. Uh, let's uh, lighten it up a little bit. Let's bring in Beer City Bruiser. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christ Bear? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Uh, I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time you're all looking forward to, the time where we get down, dirty, and a little funny. It's time now for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. And with that, we bring in the ho a co-host, a co-host with the most. Of course, we're talking about the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, fresh off a meet and greet. It's the Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, how are you doing? 
Well, I'm doing great. I love that you described my sex life with the uh, the opening there. Oh, well, yeah, I, of Fresh, course. dirty, and funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I got I to gotta put out a little bit of a twist on things, and we, we want to get to know you uh, completely, so why not throw in your sex life? I mean, you know, it's just, why not? So, yeah. yeah. It was just like, oh, hey, look, that's I've heard my sex life described in the same Three adjectives, so perfect. <laughs> uh, well, it's my pleasure. I mean, not like that, but you know, it's it's my pleasure. I'm just saying. The only thing is, it's not criminal, which is which is good. Well, yeah, it's you want to keep criminal. you want to keep that out of the sex life. Although some people don't. I'm That's just saying true. that will be included into that. Not your sex life, but I mean, you know, somebody else's <laughs> sex life. Sex life. <laughs> yeah, will be included in dumb crime, stupid criminals today. Boy, oh boy, Bruiser, we got a, a show for you today. Um, it is uh, it is confusing. There's some serious stuff in here. By the way, we are excluding one person's sex life out of dumb crime, stupid criminals today. I I got this story from multiple people this week. I'm not going to include it. It's about a professor who was busted for screwing the pooch, so to speak. Yes, it involved right. sex with his dog. We're not going to include that story this week. Uh, we're animal lovers, but we're not going that far. Yeah, I love Ziggy and Talia, but never once have I woken up and went, "Hey, girl, yeah. look at you poop." <laughs> yeah, it's there. There are certain stories that cross the line on the show. That's a story that crosses the line. So we're we're yeah. not we're not going there this week. Just pet your puppies and hug them and kiss them and feed them treats and let them run. And yeah, be yeah. normal dog owners. <laughs> yeah, so we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there this week. So we'll 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 respectfully refrain. We'll put it ah, okay. Yeah, we're respectfully refrained from that story. Although we do appreciate the the folks who send in the story. Keep keep sending us in stories. You don't you don't necessarily know where the line is. I, we appreciate it. It doesn't matter if you send in the stories. We we'll just respectfully edit it out. So that's that's yep. it. so. There you the go. only comment we have is love your puppies in a good humane way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, we'll start it off though with an interesting story. Uh, it's uh, one thing for us as normal people to get stalked. It's pretty scary. It's another when it's the police who get stalked. Oh yeah. What? what? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a case of uh, dumb crime, stupid criminals getting a little too inside and wanting to stalk the police. Yeah, it's not the person you want to stalk. They have all the resources to find out you're stalking them. That's right. And we're going to Florida, believe it or not. It's a, it's a Florida man who decided to be stupid about this. Well, go figure. Yeah. Uh, a DEA agent was stalked for 10 years by a paranoid Floridian who was nabbed by cops near the home of a federal agent's mother. Really? Yeah. So he didn't just go local small town bunkin sheriff he went federal <laughs> he he went to the top my friend he decided i'm gonna i'm gonna follow this guy over 10 years uh a paranoid florida man stalked a dea drug enforcement administration agent for 10 years according to police who arrested the suspect after he was observed driving in very close proximity to the residence of a victim of the victim's 71 year old mother this according to court records Investigators charged that 41-year-old Bradley Smith began stalking, I believe it is Evan Miyamoto, after meeting the federal agent when he went to the DEA office in Tampa to report suspicious drug activity. So he just, he went to report the suspicious drug activity, 
out came the agent and just butterflies and rainbows and singing and he's like well, this is the guy i gotta follow i don't think that's how it went down i'll tell you how it went down <laughs> that's uh, what i pictured in my head <laughs> since that encounter a decade ago smith became paranoid that the victim was investigating him oh okay yeah despite miyamoto's assurance that he was not being investigated smith allegedly pursued a years-long stalking campaign that included him showing up at the tampa dea office and other parts of the country in search of the 38 year old miyamoto due to smith contacting multiple government agencies inquiring on the victim's residence and coming into government offices he was trespassed from the dea's tampa office Agents have spoken with the defendant multiple times and asked him to stop calling their offices and attempting to locate the victim. That according to a sheriff's deputy. Yeah, you can't. I don't know anybody that knows this, but you can't call up a police station and they will they won't willy nilly just give you information on one of their federal agents like. Yeah, there's security there. Yeah, <laughs> no yeah. matter what. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Smith allegedly made threats to harm Miyamoto. Now he's crossing the line. Yep. And according to a witness, claimed that he knew where the victim lived and is driven by his house several times. Yikes. Talk about living rent-free in someone's head. Right. The witness who is not identified in a June 15th felony complaint filed against Smith told cops that Smith said he had access to firearms while speaking out about how he is frustrated with Miyamoto. Wow. Yeah. Frustrated because he's not being, he's not investigating you. Talk about narcissistic. I, this is bizarre. This is. I. Yeah. You know what? If, if I, I have a police officer that lives next door to me. He just built a beautiful house. He has a beautiful family and I've talked to him. Not once did I ever think, oh, he's, he's investigating me. No. You know? No. no. I used to live kid corner from a county sheriff and i would see him quite often we'd pull out around the same time he'd be going to work and i'd be going to the gym and huh. never once did i think oh he's going to follow me and give me a ticket yeah no he was going to work i was going to the gym i wonder what the underlying things that this guy's hiding that he literally feels guilty for that he thinks they're investigating him because that's a guilty conscience yeah it is it is uh, while searching for Miyamoto, Smith was recently spotted by Miyamoto's mother on multiple occasions, stopping in front of a residence where the victim grew up living. Uh, Smith, who was recorded by surveillance cameras outside the woman's home, was arrested earlier this month while in very close proximity to the residence. Smith was initially charged with a misdemeanor stalking count. He was charged yesterday with aggravated stalking, which is a felony, for putting Miyamoto in fear by showing up at his mother's residence and making threats to cause him harm. Smith, who lives in a mobile home park in St. Petersburg, is being held without bond. A judge has ordered him to have no contact with Miyamoto. Yeah, and now he got what he wanted. There's an investigation into him. That's right. Now he is on the radar. Have you ever met anyone that had stalked somebody? I've met someone that it was a borderline stalker case where we had to have almost an intervention for him. Be like, look, man, this is infatuation is one thing. This is you're getting real close to crossing that line. Oh, I've met two people who have stalked me. I've, I've had stalkers, too. Yeah. 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 And it, it's uh, alarming because you wonder what it is they think they're thinking. I mean, yeah. you know, it, and it, you and you really 
you form a bubble around you. Like you, your yeah. your life is affected more than just you know. Oh, I got to watch out for this person. Like you literally don't trust anybody. It it takes a long time to feel semi safe. Yeah, yeah. It yeah I had I had a girl show up at my house one time, and she when I met her, I never gave her my real name. I gave her my wrestling name at the time. Mm-hmm. And then one fourth of the July, there's a knock at my front door. And I opened the door, and there she was. Weird. And I said, what? She says, oh, when you were doing this, I took a copy of your driver's license. Oh, bizarre. Isn't it? Yeah. And scary. What if my kids are there? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's just, that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's bizarre. And I, I don't claim to be anybody, but, you know, when, when I was uh, – when I was on air in the Twin Cities, yeah, it was it was worse than even now in pod in podcast land. It's not so bad. Well, there's a movie on a late night talk show host on the radio, right? Who gets stalked? Um, I forget the name. Night calls, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And it might be just a B movie horror movie, but it, it's about a a, di- a nighttime disc jockey. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. You remember back in the day when they'd always have the call in shows oh, yeah. and all that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I did that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So and that's what I would get telling it. your maybe they're just telling your story, Tim. <laughs> I, hey, I did, I did I did overnights, brother. I'll tell you, I did uh, I did evenings and overnights, and that's when you get them. That's yeah. when you get the the lonely people who who give you a call. It happens, and that's when one of them came came through. See, I bet you this movie's all about you. It's a common story. You talk to any jock who's worked overnights or or, or worked uh, early evenings or sometime around the time where the bars close, you get them. Okay. You do. Yeah. It's it's a it's a common one. Maybe someday I'll tell the story. Someday when we have more time I'll tell stories. But yeah, yeah. it's it's uh yes, I've had you know, you get you get people who call and you know, they're they're in the bathtub or they're trying to talk naughty <laughs> to you or yeah, you get you get all kinds of yeah. You get all kinds <laughs> You're of like uh Sir, I'd just like to request for what song you want. Yeah, what song? You want wings? You want Journey? What do you want? (laughs) (laughs) Just give me your Johnny Cash request and I'll play it. I I just got done eating dinner. I'd like to hold on to it. You know, so yeah, it's, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah, you just, after a while, you, you pay it no mind, you know, it's just a game. So. Well, you just got that sexy, smooth voice. That's what it is. No, I don't. That's the thing. I sound like a fourteen-year-old. I, I don't know what the appeal was, but I think the appeal is it's it's because you know you're you're in somebody's personal space and they they think they get to know you. So yeah, yeah. So they they feel like there's that intimate bond there. So they and and really with radio, it's not. It's that was here is the weather currently is and. You know, we've got more coming up for you. There's nothing intimate about radio. No. No. So, yeah, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, Let's move on. A Michigan teen is convicted of killing her father with drain cleaner over a hair salon appointment. And I should clarify that last statement of what I said. Radio, corporate radio, there's nothing intimate about it. With <laughs> podcasting, there's something more intimate about it. We get to know yes. you guys, you get to know us. There's there's nothing intimate about corporate radio. And that's kind no, of why I love podcasting over over corporate radio. You just don't get to know anybody. Right. It's so. just, uh, here's the news, here's the weather. Yeah, yeah. Here's a funny antidote. Yeah, there, there was nothing intimate about it. 
corporate radio. Uh, Michigan teen, but, but, and by the way, th- this sent in by a listener. I, I'm trying to remember, was this Brandon who sent this in? We had another, we had a new listener this week who sent in a, a news story. So, oh, cool. Yeah. So, and keep them coming, folks. If uh, you have a news story you want to hear here on uh, Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, Tim at darknessradio.com. Send it in there. A uh, Michigan teen is convicted of killing her father with drain cleaner over a hair salon appointment. That's not good. No, that's not, a, that's not the way you handle it. Megan Emirowitz. Her father endured a double leg amputation and skin grafts before succumbing to his injuries. Ouch. Yeah, that's pain, my friend. Yeah. A Michigan teenager was convicted on Thursday of throwing drain cleaner on her father as he napped. Oh, man. Yeah, after he reneged on a promise to take her to a hair salon for her 18th birthday. 19-year-old Megan Joyce Amirowitz was found guilty by an Oakland County jury of unlawful use of irritants causing the death of her 64-year-old father, Conrad Emirowitz, on October 1st of 2021 and of misdemeanor domestic violence. Her father, who struggled with alcoholism, was too drunk to drive her to the appointment that, according to prosecutors, the enraged teenager threw lye powder and water on him as he slept on a sofa in their Ortonville home just northwest of Detroit. And lye will, will disintegrate a body. Yes. How? But you know what? Props to that guy. He was 64 and had a 19-year-old daughter. That means when he was in his late 40s, early 50s, he uh, yeah still got some swimmers. That's right. He suffered chemical burns across his body and succumbed to injuries just five months later. Jeez. The defendant who broke into tears upon hearing the verdict faces up to life in prison when she's sentenced on July 25th. This is a tragic case. The defendant lashed out in anger and wound up killing her father. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald said in a statement, I commend the prosecution team for the tremendous work that went into the prosecution and in securing justice for the victim in this case. The four-day trial included harrowing testimony from the defendant's brother, Austin Amirowitz, uh, and her mother, Joyce Conrad. The son uh, said his father, who was hospitalized for months in intensive care, underwent numerous skin grafts and endured infections that led to the amputation of both his legs. In March of 2022, he left the hospital determined to die at home, Austin Amirowitz told the jury. Three days later, he took his last breath. The son also testified about the night that his father was rushed to the hospital. He said that not long after his father was admitted, his sister called him demanding the pin to their dad's ATM card. Oh, geez. Yeah. No remorse whatsoever. Yeah. What a nice young lady, huh? <laughs> Hopefully she goes away forever. Well, let's hope so. She wanted to pay for the hotel room where she and her friends were celebrating her 18th birthday that night. Uh, really? Yep. That's why she wanted the pin. That... So if she was celebrating why dad was suffering. If anybody wants to see what lie does to the human body, watch Fight Club. It's what he puts on his hand while they're making soap. And then lie, like I said, is is a common way to dispose of bodies. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, uh, they, John Wayne Gacy, he'd mix lie, lie and lime mm-hmm. to spread on the under his crawl space. You know, it's just, it's not a good substance. Commonly what gangsters would use when they try to get rid of bodies when they went and buried them out in the in the desert or whatever they would take a bag of lye and they would take a shovel and and yep. uh, that's how they get the bodies to decompose quickly and it's it's painful mm-hmm. like I, I can't even imagine the pain that man was in till his death yep uh by the way she did not ask about her dad's condition 
when she asked for the pin number. Oh, of course she didn't. All she cared about was partying with her friends. Yep. And now now she's the only reason she's crying is because she's got to face the consequences. That's right. Enraged, Austin Mirowitz said he hung up on her. I was angry to show no care at all to dismiss something so serious. He recalled on the stand, according to the local newspaper, in an interview with police, Megan Amirowitz claimed that she had thrown a bag of bread at her father and possibly water, which were near some cleaning supplies. So she claimed she didn't throw lie at her father. (laughs) The lie just attached to the bread, you know. You had those kind of French toast, right? You dip it in the eggs, you dip it in the lie, you fry it oh, up, sure. you eat it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a recipe from uh, old home country bread, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the defendant's lawyer couldn't immediately be reached for comment. So there you go. There's that story there. That's just shameful. Uh, so yeah, I hope she goes up for, for the rest of her life. I'm going to sound like an old man, but kids these days. <laughs> you do sound like an old man. <laughs> Uh, here's a story from uh, Chicago three severed and by the way this coming from another listener of ours I believe this is uh, from Margo three severed heads from donor bodies are left at a Chicago employee's desk after complaints are raised raised rather about alleged misconduct I believe there's some rage involved here too if there are three severed heads involved Uh, we go to Chicago where Dale Wheatley who performs deliveries for the Anatomical Gift Association of Illinois came into work two weeks ago and found sage burning and three severed heads lying on a plastic a container by his desk. <laughs> I didn't know there was a return policy on body parts. <laughs> I guess there is. Who knew? Uh, Wheatley, who has worked for AGA for nearly five years, said he's never seen anything like the horror movie-like scene he stumbled upon that Wednesday morning in late May. Wheatley said the heads from AGA donors were placed next to his desk after he reported concerns about the mishandling and poor conditions of donated bodies to his supervisors. So the supervisor is like, we'll show this asshole. He wants to give us a one-star review on Yelp. Watch this. That's right. Here's your one-star review right here. Actually, one, two, three. I didn't know you could donate your head. <laughs> uh, well, evidently you can, and it was sitting right there. How's that? How you like them? How you like them apples, Scotty? Hey, this guy's just trying to get ahead in the business. That's oh all. God, I, I, I no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Jeez. Hey, he's got a head for body parts. Okay? Uh, no, don't. <laughs> Wheatley, who has worked for AGA for nearly five years, said he's never seen anything like that in his life. He said the heads for, for from AGA donors were placed next to his desk after he reported concerns about the mishandling and poor condition of donated bodies to his supervisors. Uh, he denied any maltreatment accusations, saying that handling body parts is in Wheatley's job description. Wheatley said he filed a police report after the head showed up at his desk and is now filing complaints with local and state authorities. Uh, families of deceased donate bodies for, to the not-for-profit to be used in the training of medical students at eight universities across the state, and mishandling causes the bodies to be unfit for use. Wheatley said at a news conference with an attorney, Uh, The place is deplorable. It's in shabby conditions, he said. If you're in there for more than five minutes, if you start walking around, you start to stick to the floor. Oh, that is that is a uh, grotesque picture. He's also leaving out that at the company picnic, they use the heads as volleyballs. No, they don't use (laughs) They don't use it. You're right. It's on the national bowling committee, like outing. No. 
AGA writes on its website that it aims to help donors and their families make their donations with the confidence that the AGA will observe the highest standards of responsiveness, respect, and privacy and security. O'Connor said it's Wheatley's responsibility to handle the bodies. The organization formerly known as the Demonstrators Society. I'm glad they changed the name, by the way. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Has been in operation for over a century. Wheatley manages the rack room or the room (laughs) where the bodies are held at AGA. He drives around to medical institutions, loading and unloading body parts from the tiered racking system in the AGA van. I don't think of men bodies when I hear the rack room. I, I, if I if I had to choose and I'm working with bodies, I'm working in the rack room also. <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. It's uh, a strip club, right? No, no, it's not. <laughs> a QR system is used to identify the body parts, which are embalmed, distributed for study purposes, and then cremated and returned to families. Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, a, 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 I almost said anatomy, but it's anatomy. I know the right syllables and the right purposes. Uh, lab manager Casey Tilden sent an email the day before the heads appeared in Wheatley's office complaining about the conditions of the donors they received. Donors, or those who have donated their bodies for medical use, were covered with flies or contorted in such a way that they couldn't be used, Tilden wrote in the email, which was provided to the Tribune. There are a handful of donors that were recently delivered with feet and hands that show signs of decomposition, Tilden said in a message to AGA. According to Wheatley, other universities have also emailed complaints. Well, that's not good. No, not good at all. So there you go. So you figure we'll put the three heads together and come up with a solution. No, no, they, they, they didn't do that, Bruce. They didn't do that at all. <laughs> Moving on, a woman in disguise tried to kill her ex's wife with a knife hidden in a bouquet of flowers. Nothing says I love you like a bouquet of flowers uh, to the gut. No, it doesn't. (laughs) I'm reminded of the uh, Terminator 2 with the cool imagery while the Guns N' Roses song was playing. Oh, yeah. Remember, he walks in with the the bouquet of roses and pulls the gun out of it. I'm like, oh, look at that. They're paying homage to the band. See? Guns N' Roses is way better than Knives N' Roses. You yeah, know? it is. It's, yeah. it's, well, Welcome uh, to the Jungle is so much better than Welcome to Antarctica. You got a point there. Yeah, you got a point. A woman in the United Kingdom has been sentenced to more than 22 years in prison for repeatedly stabbing the wife of a man whom she previously had a romantic relationship with. That, according to local authorities, Claire Bailey, Claire Bailey, uh, launched the attack. That's a Jimmy Stewart joke. Launched the uh, attack with a knife she had hidden in a bouquet of flowers. The 44-year-old Bailey pleaded guilty to attempted murder in connection with the attack last year. North Yorkshire police said in a news release announcing her sentence, Bailey carried out the attack on June 23, 2022, when she appeared at the targeted woman's residence in Harrogate, which is a town in North Yorkshire. She was wearing a COVID-style face mask and a red wig. So it was uh, basically, it was a little orphan uh, anti-COVID. <laughs> yeah. Uh, authorities say Bailey showed up at the home with a bouquet of flowers purchased from a grocery store in order to conceal a large carving knife. That's a pretty big bouquet. That is. And do you see, can you picture her in the flower store, like with the knife holding it up? Like, these are too small. No, no, yeah, that's not going to cover it. Yep. 
she showed up at the home with a bouquet of flowers purchased from a grocery store in order to conceal that carving knife. Uh, Bailey eventually used the knife to stab the victim, a 43-year-old who police identified as Emma. (laughs) Although Emma did not know Bailey prior to the stabbing, authorities later determined that Bailey was previously involved in a romantic affair with Emma's husband. Oops. Whoopsie. Uh, The affair had ended several months before the offense took place, something which Bailey had struggled to accept, obviously. Yeah. Uh, When Emma met Bailey at the door to her home last June, Bailey launched an unprovoked attack on her, repeatedly stabbing and slashing the victim to her neck, chest, stomach, and arms. Man, thanks for the flowers, but... You forgot to cut the thorns off. These are really slicing me up. Oh, oh dude. no. <laughs> um, I didn't know fatal attraction could really be a, a real thing, but the more and more we have these stories, the more and more I'm like, yep. 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 Harrison Ford was in the wrong. Yes, he was. Yep. Uh, the victim's daughter uh, said that Emma attempted to defend herself. The victim's daughter, by the way, a teenager, also witnessed the attack and tried to intervene. Uh, Bailey then fled the scene and returned to her home in the West Midlands, where police arrested her two days later. Emma survived the attack, but her injuries required extensive surgery and a hospital stay lasting more than a month. Oh, jeez. Yeah, she got cut up. Do you think when they're asking for get well cards, they told everybody, hey, no flowers, though? (laughs) No, Bruiser, no. Uh, that that month stay, uh, she was not able to see her children during that month stay. By the way, uh, the woman also continues to deal with serious phys- physical repercussions of the stabbing, as well as flashbacks, nightmares, and insomnia. Almost one year after the fact, the quote here is: "I'm still in pain every day and need painkillers to help with this. I use crutches to get around, as I am still unable to use my right leg fully." And for long distances, I have a wheelchair, Emma said in a statement. I lost all my independence. I couldn't go back to work. We're having to rely on disability benefits. I have just lost my whole life, really. I need help with everything I do. I know people will have their opinion about what I should have done following the attack, but I have done what's best for me, the statement continued. Affairs happen. They aren't nice, but they happen. And no one would ever imagine something like this would be the outcome. This was not a normal reaction to someone breaking up a relationship. No, it's not. And it's sad that she's going through that. And the, the worst part about it is the husband, for their anniversary, planned a trip to the botanical garden. And she broke out in a cold sweat and said she didn't want to go. <laughs> God. <laughs> it is sad it is i should have gave you this one but i didn't (laughs) come on you're not going to give me my flowers for that (laughs) come on these jokes are killing it (laughs) okay you take a stab at it (laughs) That's all I got. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> A year later, you'll find it funny. I know Father's Day was Sunday, but you didn't have to break the dad jokes out. There you go. I, I heard an article, uh, read an article. I don't know if you have it on, on here about a dad whose dad jokes actually 
broke up a bank robbery. What? Yeah, or I'm sorry, a grocery store robbery. A, a grocery store was being robbed, and a guy was in there with his two kids. And to defuse the situation, the dad started telling dad jokes. And after an hour and a half standoff, the dad became friends with the the hostage takers. And to this day, they're still friends because they thought he was hilarious. And they he helped calm the situation down enough for them to surrender. So dad jokes work, man. <laughs> dad jokes work. Yep. Uh, let me see. I'm... I'm trying to see if I can uh, if I can find it real quick. I don't see it though. Um, yeah, I listened to NPR and I heard it on there. You heard it on there, huh? Huh? Nope. It says uh, I got one that says at least three men recently robbed through Grinder dating app. And dad's ass is stolen in a, in a, these are two stories I don't have today, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll throw them in next week. How about that? I got to continue on the knife, the knife deal here. Okay. This one, a uh, bruiser, it almost sounds like you might've been involved, but not, not really. Okay. I pulled this story in honor of you, my friend, uh, because it sounds like, uh, the perfect crime. A knife-wielding thief was busted after a store owner trapped him in the shutters. It just so happens uh, they were breaking open the beer. Oh, good for them. Yeah. A robber in England was sentenced to three years in jail this week after an attempted robbery, uh, but it was only thanks to the quick thinking of his victim that he ended up in police custody in the first place. It wasn't the most difficult arrest we ever had to make, to be honest. It was an open-and-shut case. (laughs) there you go there's your dad joke detective sergeant paul mawson of durham const is it constabulary constabulary is that how you say it constabulary i know they're constables yeah constabulary Constabulary. Uh, told told the northern echo 30 year old martin trimble walked into a convenience store last month in durham city with a knife he picked up a four pack of beer that's a thing a four pack of beer yeah, over there. You can get wow. some four-packs here. Like, if you get the Tall Boy Coors Light, so that's a four-pack. Okay. He picked up a four-pack of beer and used his knife to threaten the store owner. Rather than let Trimble walk away, the store owner ran outside and closed the door, holding it tight and trapping his thief inside. <laughs> You're not getting out of here. <laughs> Just holding it. <laughs> the shop owner, who remained unnamed, then lowered the storefront shutter in an effort to make sure Trimble couldn't escape. So it's like that scene in, in episode one where Darth Maul's pacing like a lion. Yes. And yeah. Qui-Gon just sits down. <laughs> yeah. The store closes the shutters and just sits down and starts <laughs> to meditate. That's right. Uh, Trimble tried to avoid capture again by breaking the door free of the shop owner's grip and trying to slip out before the shutter had fully descended. But the shutter was too low and Trimble found himself pinned to the ground his torso outside and open to the street. (laughs) Oh, no. That's funny. Uh, Realizing he was beat, Trimble cracked open one of the beers and he (laughs) tried to steal and drank it while he waited for the police to take him away. That's what I'd do. You're you're done, you know. Yeah, you might as well have a beer. Exactly. Yep. Officers arrived within three minutes of receiving the call and arrested Trimble. He pled guilty to a charge of attempted robbery and possession of a knife and is sent, will be sentenced on, or was rather, was sentenced on June 16th to prison. 
Um, so there you go. He, uh, yeah. He just he gave up, started drinking the beer. Good for him. Yeah, gave up, had a beer, decided, ah, it ain't worth it. I'd be worried to have my upper half on the outside because you don't know how many drunkards are going to walk past and pee on you. Oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> and if I was a store owner, I'd be like, come on, whatever you want to do until the cops get here. Have a go. <laughs> yep, <laughs> whatever you want to do. <laughs> Put a sign out, do whatever you want to this guy's face. <laughs> have a crank. Go at it. <laughs> oh. Yeah, not good. Uh, let's move on. An Illinois man is charged with shooting himself during a dream. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this one uh, I think came in from Margot. Uh, thanks to her for the story. The Lake Barrington man shot himself in the leg in April. He's been charged in part because he had a gun with a revoked firearms owner's identification card. Oops. Yeah. An Illinois man who police say shot himself in the leg while he was dreaming about burglars has been charged with firearms offenses. Why, where was the gun? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm about to tell you. The 62-year-old Lake Barrington man survived the accidental April shooting and no one else was hurt, the Lake County Sheriff's Office said. He was charged with possessing a firearm with a revoked firearm owner's identification, which is required in Illinois, and reckless discharge of a firearm, this according to the Sheriff's Office. The man was arrested on a warrant Monday and is free after he posted bond. The shooting happened after after around 9.50 p.m. on April 10th, and first responders needed to use a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. <laughs> the man had a dream that someone was breaking into his home and fired a 357 caliber revolver, it said. The bullet went into the bed. When he fired, he shot himself and apparently woke up from the dream. <laughs> You think? <laughs> 357 does some damage. Yeah. Investigators found no evidence of a burglary. Uh, it was not clear from the statement why the firearm identification card called a FOID had been revoked. Online court records did not appear to show an attorney for the man who was charged on Tuesday evening. In Illinois, gun owners are required to have a firearm owner's identification card to legally possess firearms or ammunition. Lake Barrington is a village of around 5,000, about 35 miles northwest of downtown Chicago. I picture him waking up the next morning, going in the kitchen to get his coffee, talking to his wife, going, I had the strangest dream last night. Someone broke in the house and I shot him. And the wife's like, honey, your leg. <laughs> You're <laughs> like bleeding. You blood everywhere. You are bleeding out, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another one. Uh, this one sent in from Tom. Tom is stepping up his game this week. Oh, Tom took the challenge, huh? He took the challenge. Uh, this is a good one. A road rage incident involving a tractor trailer and guns leads to an arrest in Bartow County. <laughs> Great headline. <laughs> yep. The Gordon County Sheriff's Office said that a road rage incident began near the Georgia-Tennessee state line. Of course it did. Cue the banjos, if you will. <laughs> I've been to that state line. It's, uh, it's country. Yep. Uh, on Interstate 75 involving two tractor-trailer trucks that resulted in an arrest in Bartow County. The sad thing is there's no Florida man here, but, you know, it's it's close. It's close enough. You're only a couple states away. That's right. The two trucks, after entering Georgia, drove southbound on the interstate with one truck, according to witnesses, attempting to force the other from the roadway. The incident allegedly began with one truck attempting to change lanes. 
The truck continued southward through Whitfield County into Gordon County, where one of the drivers fired a shot from a handgun into the driver's compartment of the other truck. Oops. Yeah, that'll get you in trouble. The victim driver was struck and injured by flying shards of glass from the shot, but managed to notify 911 and followed the offender into Bartow County. The offender subsequently identified as one Nashua. No, it's Nashua. Whoa, what a name. Hold on. Nasha Jewel Johnson, age 25, of Boynton Beach, Florida. Here's the Florida connection. There's the Florida man. You right. knew he's a Florida man. That's right. Was apprehended by state troopers on Interstate 75 in Bartow County. The victim stopped at a truck stop near the Cass White exit and was located by Bartow County deputy sheriffs. Gordon County Sheriff's detectives went to Bartow County and took custody of the offender, took statements from the victim and other witnesses, and also had the offender's truck taken to the sheriff's office. Their detectives executed a search warrant for the truck and discovered the handgun believed to have been used in the assault as well as other physical evidence. Johnson was jailed and charged with aggravated assault, aggressive driving, and pointing a pistol at another. That's a charge. (laughs) That's a great charge. That's a great charge. Uh, The victim was treated and released from Cartersville Medical Center. Johnson remains in custody pending bond. Breaker 1-9, I got an M need a smoky. What's up there, Chuck? Well, I was just getting shot at and (laughs) need to get this guy pulled over. (laughs) Now we're going to jump into Florida land, if you will, and get a little bit of Florida man. So that was just a teaser for Florida Man. Yeah, now we're doing the real thing. It turns out uh, somebody is a big fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Okay, which you have the right to do. Yeah, and is a big fan of one of the uh, the casts. Okay, I'm a fan of a lot of the cast, the great actors. In fact, such a big fan, they decided to adopt one of them for their own. (laughs) Wait, I can adopt Chris Pratt? Well, not Chris Pratt. That's not the one. <laughs> Let uh, me explain. I'm Zoe sends and whatever. I'm like, I'll adopt her. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll adopt Zoe Saldana. I'll yeah. Oh, yeah. It wasn't her either. She has uh, to have the makeup, though. Yeah, yeah. The green makeup so that she <laughs> dies of toxicity. Yes. Yeah. Green paint will kill you. Uh, no, Bruiser, it's not her either. It turns out that Clearwater Police arrested a woman for drugs and found a raccoon in her bag. <laughs> that's right she thought she was carrying rocket raccoon we go to clearwater florida why is it clearwater is now the trash capital of the world have you been there yes i've been there many a times that it's, place is stuck in the 80s man it's it's very pretty when you drive through just don't stop i i my old trainer trevor used to live in clearwater so every time that ring of honor was in lakeland which is up by tampa yep. i'd make the drive down and stay a week with him mm-hmm. and we'd always go to the beach every day and there's bars there hogan's beach shop which oh, yeah, yeah. luke's got a gym there but yeah. it's stuck in the 80s it is yeah I saw a guy walk around with a hot pink Gold's Gym t-shirt with the <laughs> skin-tight biker shorts that were red and white striped in a fanny pack. Yeah. I thought I only saw it in the professional wrestling world. No, no. real human yeah. beings in Florida yeah. they do. do that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Yeah. He had the old Oakleys, too. You know, the big yep. razor blade Oakleys? Yep. 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 With the leather Harley Davidson do-rag. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's, uh, Yeah. 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 And this guy had to be all about 180 pounds soaking wet. So I don't know why he had a gold's gym, pink, hot pink tank top. Because he thought he looked good in it. 
That's what. That's what. Uh, walking with his marble smoking, drinking whiskey every single day, suntan wife who was probably 30 but looked like she was a 75. Yeah, she she looked like a leather couch. Yeah, and sounded like, you know, a trucker. She sounded hey, like boy. this. Welcome hey, to Clearwater. You all want to go to Steak and Shake and grab some lunch? Clearwater's a great beach. Glad you could come. <laughs> Pick up your cigarette butts. Hey, sweetie, you got a light? <laughs> Vaping's for pussies. I do the real thing. <laughs> I take the filters off my Marlboros, otherwise I can't <laughs> taste it. <laughs> and I wish they still had Paul Mall. <laughs> Paul Mall was wonderful. You know, when they had the Paul Mall uptown. <laughs> uh, we go to Clearwater, where a woman was found with a baby raccoon in her bag after police <laughs> searched her belongings during a bicycle stop. <laughs> That's my raccoon, boys. It's okay. <laughs> That's not a raccoon. I forgot to shave. <laughs> you guys see Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, this is Rocket. He's not really a raccoon. <laughs> He's a squirrel. He's a stand-in. That's right. According to the Clearwater Police Department, 43-year-old Lindsay Roadwald <laughs> was stopped while riding her bike, which did not have lights on during the night. Oh, I guess that is a thing. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a violation. Uh, while speaking with police, she gave them verbal consent to search her backpack. Officers found a broken glass pipe with crystal residue. Yay. Sure, go ahead. Look at my bag. <laughs> it's not my mess. A field... My raccoon, but not my mess. That's, that's the raccoon's mess. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think they call him Rocket? <laughs> a field test indicated the presence of methamphetamine on the raccoon. <laughs> raccoon was his eyes like tight. <laughs> <laughs> He's just chattering away in the bag. <laughs> He's just yelling, Groot? Where's Groot? <laughs> Groot? Roadwald uh, told the police department she forgot the pipe was in her bag and that she used meth a few days prior, but the raccoon was high as fuck. I'm just yeah. saying. Yep. Uh, Roadwald told the police department, I just read that twice because I'm high as fuck too. I, I'd like to smoke my meth, but uh, the, the raccoon there, he bogarted the whole thing. I gotta wait. <laughs> I won't even hit the button for that one. <laughs> uh, upon further investigation, the raccoon was found in the woman's backpack. Police said it was around a week old. Uh-huh. Oh. Baby okay. raccoon. Yeah. High as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the critter was taken to the veterinarian emergency group in Tampa. It will be cared for alongside other young raccoons before being released into the wild. Is it baby raccoon a side, a side thing that people carry around in Florida? I guess so, if they got enough in there that they have a whole, like, wing for just baby raccoons. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Baby raccoon? You have a baby raccoon problem. Bring it on down. Raccoons are us. That's right. That's right. Uh, on mess? We'll go put them through rehab. <laughs> <laughs> they have a they have a 12-step program for raccoons at the vet. <laughs> one you are not rocky you live on earth you don't have a, pl a pet plant oh 
That's the cutest thing ever. Hey, Bruiser. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into a drug section now. Not, uh, we already are, but we're going to get into a little <laughs> drug section here on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. I'm going to ask you a, a brief question here. You're a big fan of the movie Cocaine Bear. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. Okay. Watched it again four times now. Wow. See? <laughs> I'm loving it. You're da 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 da. Uh, <laughs> So I'll ask you the question. If you want to become a cocaine cowboy, what city and state in the nation do you think you'd go to? If, if for cocaine? Yeah, for cocaine. Where do you think you'd for go? For the cocaine, I'd probably go down to Mexico. Or, I'm sorry, Florida. Because there's a lot of gotta, cocaine on gotta, Florida. Got to be in the U.S. Okay, so Florida. Florida. Mm-hmm. Or I'd go into uh, New York City. I believe there, there's probably a lot of the cocaine. You would think, right? Or maybe yeah. L.A. L.A. Would yeah, be good. Southern Southern California. Southern Any, California. close to Mexico. Yeah. Southern Texas, Southern Mexico, or um, California, New Mexico. If I was going to. Maybe t- even Arizona. Oh, I was going to take a shot, say Seattle. Maybe Seattle, is, you know. Yeah, I could be coming in that way. Yeah. I don't know how the Canadian blow is compared to the Mexican blow. Probably more polite. Well, this has got to be in the U.S. So I'm going to. No, I'm no, I'm saying like import wise. Yeah, like import If you're importing wise, in right. Seattle from Canada, does that make you happier or nicer? I don't know. I don't know. Compared to the Mexican, would, you know what I mean? I would even say Texas. Somewhere yeah, Texas. I could say Texas. Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, Bruiser, I have a story here in front of me that says Traverse City, Michigan is the cocaine capital of the U.S. <laughs> That's close to the border, I'm assuming. So, yeah, there's some Canadians up there giving away their snow. It turns out that also Grand Rapids, Michigan is also among the top 10 wildest cities in the U.S. I believe that. I've, I've been to Grand Rapids, and we were not allowed to stay overnight in Grand Rapids. Really? Yeah, they, they we had a bus where we were doing a, a loop, so they had us on a bus. And the last night was in Grand Rapids, and then we had a day off, and then I think we were in... Buffalo. I don't remember where we were, but they told us, nope, you are not staying in Grand Rapids. It's too too risky. Wow. The buses didn't feel safe parking in Grand Rapids. Really? Yeah. So I believe that it's one of the rowdier cities. I'll, I'll give you that. I didn't know about the cocaine, but hey. Yeah, the cocaina. Uh, Michigan's Traverse City is a tourist town primarily known as the cherry capital of the world, but a recent study takes the or makes the case rather that the little beachside burg can also claim the title of being the cocaine capital of the U.S. Well, good for them. <laughs> I don't know that that's good for them, but <laughs> that's according to OLBG, an online sports betting guide, which is named... <laughs> Yes. Hey, they know their clientele, okay? That's right. Um, Which named Michigan's Traverse City and Grand Rapids among the top 10 wildest cities in the U.S., ranking at number three and number 10, respectively. To come up with its ranking, OLB or BG said it analyzed U.S. cities by factors including the prevalence of casinos, strip clubs, cannabis use, and cocaine use. The authors say they also cited county health rankings for self-reported binge drinking or heavy drinking, among others. Traverse City was ranked number three overall with a wildness score of 7.71 out of 10. All right, good for them. (laughs) Yes, if if you didn't come to party, don't come knocking on Traverse City's door. But if you want a party, you know where to go to. Hey, any bachelor parties out there, you know where to go. That's right. Traverse City. Yeah. Michigan. Yeah. 
The city is renowned for its vineyards and wineries, and this makes it less surprising that 23% of the residents there drink heavily, the authors wrote. Some of the other factors that make up Traverse City's 7.71 out of 10 overall score are the 12.76 strip clubs per 100,000 residents. (laughs) And the fact that 65.8% of people here have taken marijuana. Well, good for them. Where do they take it? I don't know. Over the border, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's legal in Michigan. That's right. Uh, When it comes to cocaine use, Traverse City ranked number one with 23.8% of its population of 15,675 having taken the drug. Well, you got, you know, you got all those vineyards up there. So all those soccer moms, they need energy. That's right. There's a reason the grapes get picked really fast in Traverse City. (laughs) Because They have the fastest, uh, what is that, uh, harvesting time. That's right. (laughs) Because 23% of the population is on the coke. Uh, Grand Rapids came in at number nine with 21.4% of its population of 195,911 using the cocaina. Uh, Traverse City also ranked as the number one U.S. city for cannabis use, with 65% of their residents reporting using the sweet leaf, according to the study. Grand Rapids came in next at number two, with 65% of their residents admitting to inhaling. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now... Again, the, the marijuana is legal, so I, that I, okay, that's a stat. Cool. It's the cocaine that's like, whoa. Yeah, when you're when you're twenty some percent of your residents having used coke, you're uh, how do you how do you get to be a part of that survey? Like, have you ever gotten a survey in the mail that asked you how much no. cocaine you're using? No, I never have, <laughs> never had. No. Um, like I always get, are you happy with your Wi-Fi? Never. Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. How many eight balls do you do in a week? <laughs> yeah, it's always the tell us how we're doing. Yeah, how's our driving? <laughs> uh, it's never. Hey, are you uh, are you eight balling? <laughs> Um, so they're saying here that, uh, they're taking all the rankings with a grain of salt. They think factory and cannabis use is a city's in a city's wildness score is an old fashioned way of thinking is an old, is an old fashioned way of thinking, considering that cannabis, as you pointed out, bruiser was legalized in Michigan for medicinal use in 2008 for adult use in 2018. And anyone who smoked some strong indica knows that wild is perhaps overselling the drug's effect. It'll put you right to sleep. Oh, it does. Um, it's also not clear to what extent tourism factors into those figures as well. Yeah, but nobody's touring to, to those two places. Yeah, no one's going to Traverse City for Yeah, a Grand Rapids maybe, but not Traverse City. By the way, the top wildest city in the U.S. with a wildness score of 8.61, where would you think that would be? L.A. or New York? I don't have a drum roll up, but I'll tell you this much. It ain't neither one of those. Really? Okay. It's, it's probably someplace like Omaha, Nebraska or someplace we're not thinking <laughs> of. Where all they can do is fight, fuck, and do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a city that you could do all three of those in. <laughs> but it is Reno, Nevada. Ah, okay. Which has got the funniest police force in the city. Or in the yeah, land. It does. Yeah. yeah, it does. Yeah. So there you go. You know, if you call 911 in Reno, they don't show up. They don't. No, it's like the actual police show up. I was disappointed. Yeah, that is sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of cocaine, the U.S. Coast Guard, Coast Guard has seized 14,000 pounds of cocaine worth $186 million in international waters. 
I think we know where they can take it, though. <laughs> we know a place you can dump yeah. it off. Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, the I, United- didn't, I didn't know Lake Michigan was international waters. Well, it is now. <laughs> That's why Traverse City is so high. Uh, the United States Coast Guard offloaded thousands of pounds of cocaine worth more than $186 million in Miami on Friday. Over 14,000 pounds of illicit narcotics had been intercepted by guardsmen in nine separate operations, according to the Coast Guard. Wow. The missions took place in the international waters of the Caribbean Sea in the Atlantic Ocean. I'm going to show you a picture that's absolutely going to astound you. If you put all this on your cornflakes bruiser, you would be running from here to Istanbul and back. Uh, In addition to confiscating the drugs, authorities arrested 12 suspected drug smugglers on various charges. They will face prosecution in U.S. federal courts. The quote here is, The contraband offloaded today represents the professional expertise and dedication of U.S. defense and law enforcement agencies working together to combat the flow of illicit drugs to the Caribbean region and to the United States, said a very high Coast Guard Lieutenant Peter Hutchinson, because <laughs> he probably breathed a little of that in. Yeah. Um, yeah, they also said... This teamwork is imperative to the identification, interception, and seizure of vessels elicited and illicit trafficking, and it's estimates of the hard work of these crews. <laughs> Here, Bruiser, is a picture of how much cocaine they picked up. Oh, geez. <laughs> how many guys are standing there? I'll just say their whole squad is standing in front of, now fan, like listeners, here's, here's what this is. It's a picture of a boat. With every single member of their their team, so there's got to be about thirty of them in there, yep. maybe even more. Mm-hmm. And each person is standing in front of a pallet, yes, a pallet size of cocaine. Yep. And I let's see, the shortest guy in that picture is maybe what six foot. Yep. And all the pallets are taller than the people in that picture. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of coke there, kids. That is a lot of cocaine. Yeah, there is. That's why I said they probably read that really fast. You see, and I guess that's probably why Florida wasn't brought in or Miami is because they're busting them left and right. In Traverse City, no one thinks, oh, this is going to be a cocaine capital of the world. No. Mm-mm. Nope, absolutely not. That's why Traverse City gets away with it. <laughs> <laughs> they're shipping it down from Canada. Uh, let's, you, need, you need some blow, eh? <laughs> yeah, you want some blow, eh? Huh? Uh, as opposed to a blowy, which is totally different. Um, <laughs> let's move on, shall we? We're not even in the not safe for work uh, section yet. <laughs> a gas station clerk is as, asks his friend to rob his store so he can go home early. This according to police. Okay. <laughs> you ever just need a day off, Bruiser? You're just uh, like, yeah. you know what? I can't do it today. I, I got to get out of here. I, I, I just need a day off. What? happened to the old old time you have your buddy call in and say he's your uncle and your grandma died whatever happened to that Evidently it's like gone. hey tim i don't want to work today in about an hour can you call my boss say you're my brother say grandma died yeah i can get off the, I just you gotta, know i gotta get out of here yeah 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 nope nope not this guy <laughs> this guy took it a whole other way yep well he didn't want to miss out on the money he was gonna miss yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he yeah. just wanted to be robbed and get out of there. Exactly. A gas station employee in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is accused of asking a friend to find someone to rob the store so he could go home early. 
According to the Tulsa Police Department, the investigation began when the employee, whose name is Isaiah Jones, reported that a man walked into the store June 5th and handed him a note that read, give me all your money or I will shoot you. <laughs> yeah, because that generally happens in a robbery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jones complied and the suspect left with cash. Investigators later, later identified Stephen Jones. No relation, by the way. None. No. As the suspect and arrested him on June 8th. However, police said there was more to the story than what appeared. Stephen Jones confessed to the robbery, but said his friend, I believe it's Aaliyah Locke, set up the crime because Isaiah Jones had asked her if someone could rob the store so he could leave early. <laughs> I'd do that for you, Tim. Would you? I'd do that for Yeah, if, if the cruiser called me up and said, hey, have somebody rob my store. I got to get out of here. I'd, I'd find somebody for you. I'd, be like, I'd make sure they were in a, a stool pigeon, you know, and yeah, like as soon as yeah. they got arrested, they throw us under the bus. I'd be like, Bruiser, I just can't sit here at the comic book store one more <laughs> moment. Have somebody come in and rob me so I can go home. Yep, I would do it. Police say Locke was arrested for an outstanding warrant and provided text messages that corroborated Stephen Jones' story. Police then arrested Isaiah Jones on Wednesday, who admitted to asking Locke to find somebody to rob the store because he was tired and wanted to go home. <laughs> Colin, sick, bro. <laughs> yeah, really. Isaiah Jones is charged with embezzlement and conspiracy to commit a felony. Stephen Jones, by the way, is charged with conspiracy to commit embezzlement and possession of a firearm after the former conviction of a felony. Locke was arrested on an outstanding warrant and could also face charges of embezzlement, police said. Both men were released on bond as of Friday afternoon. Locke remains in the Tulsa County Jail. And guess what? Isaiah Jones gets all the time off that he wants. Yeah, got fired. Yeah. I feel bad for the friend. She's sitting in there while the other two are free. <laughs> She's like, I just made a call. <laughs> right, right. Well, kids, we're getting to that. Uh, we're, we're, we're just about at that time of NSFW. Not quite. We've got one more story, and then we're going to get to the not safe for work part of Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. We've got two stories left. Our first story, and we're, by the way, we're going back to Florida. Of course. We have to. Uh, we go to St. Petersburg, Florida. Are you a hoarder? No. No? My father is, but okay. I am not. Okay. So you know the difficulties of living with a hoarder. <laughs> yes, my father still has. And this is, this is going to date me because they don't do this anymore. But my father still has a Folgers metal can full of bent nails. My grandfather had that. Yep, every grandfather had that. And then my father learned from his father, my grandfather. And so now my kids can say their grandfather has it. It's, it's, it's a dying phase, I think. For one, you can't get metal Folgers cans anymore. But yeah. it, no, like I I always tell my dad, why? Well, you can bend them back and use them again. And I've never seen him use one nail from there. <laughs> never. <laughs> my, my grandpa, this is my mother's father. Grandpa Lasker used to have entire bales of wire sitting in the corner of the garage that I never saw him use. Yeah. And I'd say, Grandpa, what are you doing with all that wire? And he'd go, don't touch it. That's good wire. Yep. Okay. My father got a weight set when I was 10 
because I was getting into football and stuff. So mm-hmm. he went and he got a weight set from a garage sale. Still owns it to this day. It's all rusted and gross. <laughs> I say, Dad, I have a gym membership. No, I don't need that. Well, no, you never know. The kids might need it. No, my kids don't need it. Well, the grandkids might need it. No, they won't. <laughs> <laughs> they, they'll, they'll need a tetanus shot before yeah. and after. Yeah, yeah. Just, just get rid of it. Uh, well, neighbors are clashing with a St. Petersburg hoarder, and his junk collection resumes after they, the neighbors had 20 tons of his junk hauled away. That sounds like my father. 20 tons. Now, you may say, well, where's the crime, Tim? We'll tell you. The police were called in on this. It does get to a point where it's illegal to have that much, especially when it's encroaching on other people's land. But when it starts playing a role and it could possibly harm you. Yeah. They, a- you know, because then they can condemn your house. Yeah, it's a health hazard. Yeah. An admitted hoarder returned from a county jail stint unrelated to code violations involving his property and discovered his piles of junk were gone. That could throw him into a tizzy, too. It did. 52-year-old Jason Johns was arrested in December for possession of methamphetamine, surprise, <laughs> and was locked up on a probation violation. Of course. While he was away, the company Junk Warriors gave Johns' friends and family a discount rate to clear the property on 56th Street North, and a stunning 20 tons of trash bruiser was hauled away. That is a lot of trash. Yeah. I'll give my dad that. He doesn't have, he has trash, but it's like nails, um, old car batteries, old batteries. Yeah. You know, so stuff that, if you need be, could be useful. It's not like old newspapers or magazines or anything like that. Right. Here's the kicker. Now, his neighbors say surveillance camera video shows John's sifting through trash cans near his home and hauling shopping carts of items back to his property. (laughs) So he went and found the stuff they took. (laughs) Are you ready for this? James Battaglia and other neighbors said John's collects junk throughout the day, including early in the morning. They said he also acts irrationally when asked to stop and leaves obscene notes on the trash he doesn't take. Right? (laughs) My dick's bigger than this. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Math is a crazy drug, man. (laughs) It is. Battaglia went on to say, I don't know if he's going to end up with a credit card in my name. We're not sure what's going on with him, but we want our neighborhood to be a civil neighborhood for everybody. Neighbors said the situation is far from civil, with confrontations erupting on a regular basis. Amanda Ergler called police after an argument between Johns and her husband included a caught-on-camera statement that Egler said was a threat. I know how to fucking kill you, Johns has heard saying on the recording. Wow. Right? Whoa. Ergler then called the police. I would. But they said because he didn't actively say what he was going to do, how he was going to kill him or show a weapon, they couldn't do anything, Ergler said. Yeah, it's a fine line. That's going to suck if this guy gets hurt. Yep. That was one of the many police visits to John's home. Records show officers have been there 42 times since last April. Meth is a wonderful drug, I told you. Yeah. A petition Ergler filed for an injunction for stalking was denied in court. The order stated the court could not issue an injunction to keep the peace between neighbors or force people to behave civilly. (laughs) 
No one answered when eight on your side knocked on John's door and he has yet to respond to a note asking for comment. Last year, John's said some of the debris was dumped in his yard by strangers and he also blamed his personal issues. <laughs> Here's the quote. John said, I had a couple of deaths in my family in the past year and I'm a little bit of a hoarder. No shit, Sherlock. He says, I admit that. City officials said collecting junk is not illegal. Uh, the courts cannot put a lien on the property until violations total at least $15,000. Oh, geez. Yeah. Andrew Watts, who lives across the street from John's, has called on changes in the law to allow quicker action by the city when other cases like this arise. We hear on the media, see something, say something, Watts said. Well, we see this, but saying something does nothing. It has escalated. Over the last week, the cops were here five times. Five times for this guy. Jeez. Yep. That's his, insane. His wife, Bonnie, says she does not feel safe to go outside. I feel like I'm in prison. I'm imprisoned in my house, she said. I can't come out here and enjoy the flowers. <laughs> Why? Because the flowers are buried in shit? I was going to say, is he covering the flowers? Is he smoking <laughs> meth right in front of the flowers? Who knows? Who knows? All right, kids, our last story is a not-safe-for-work story. We're going to give you a couple seconds here to turn down your listening devices. If you're at work, put in your air earbuds, AirPods, whatever you got. Uh, if you're around the children, not like they should have been listening to this program to begin with. Um, but, you know, just, uh, you know, get ready because we're going to give you a saucy story in five, four, three, two, and here we go. Uh, we're back in Florida, Bruiser. Okay. The headline is this. If you're ready for this. I was too lazy to put on clothes. A woman wearing only a towel and drinking four loco was arrested for allegedly letting kids photograph her naked in the Dollar General parking lot. <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been in a towel drinking Four loco, but I never left my house. <laughs> That's right. But why take it to the Dollar General parking lot? That's my well, thing. You're going to get the best, best people there to take pictures. That's right. A scantily clad 36-year-old woman in Florida was arrested this week after police said she went to a local Dollar General store wearing nothing but a towel wrapped loosely around her body and a can of Four loco in her hand as she let a pair of juveniles take pictures and videos of her completely undressed. Oh, that's so wrong. That's Florida. <laughs> Giselle Robinson was taken into custody on Monday and charged with two counts of lewd and lascivious exhibition, which is a second-degree felony, court documents reviewed by Law and Crime magazine have found out. Uh, according to the probate cause affidavit, an officer with the Mascot Police Department uh, responded to a, I believe it's mas Mascot, it's its spelled with two T's and an E, it may be Mascotti. Who's, who's the Mascot, Florida's Mascot? I don't know. <laughs> Is uh, it just the Mascot of a Mascot? It might be Mascot or Mascotti, it's two T's and an E. I would think the T is... Mascote? Mascote, Mascotti, I don't know. Maybe it's it's Native American, Mascote? Mascote? I don't know. Uh, like Seminole? It could be. Yeah, Seminole. Mascate? 
Mascate Police Department uh, responded to a call on Monday at about 9.30 p.m. regarding a woman who had allegedly exposed herself to two juveniles outside the Dollar General store in the 400 block of East Myers Boulevard. The caller was an employee of the store who had allegedly spoken with the two juveniles about the woman. <laughs> well, yeah, they probably would have been, man, <laughs> tits and ass that are out there right now. Check out these <laughs> selfies, bro. Yeah. And I'm glad you guys sell for loco. We yeah. don't sell for loco. Oh, oh, okay. Where's she getting her supply, bro? I wanted to buy her another can. <laughs> Speaking of cans, check this one out. <laughs> her towel's a little dirty, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> An officer found the woman wearing a towel wrapped around her body while holding a can of four locos alcoholic beverage the affidavit states the woman later identified as robinson allegedly told the officer that walking around in public with only a towel is normal to her it sure is yeah especially we're on that four local you can't sit still when you're on four local <laughs> we like to call it uh the the rednecks formal wear the the wrap towel <laughs> Yes. Yeah. You know, this towel is perfect for if you want to go swimming, if you want to take a shower, <laughs> if you need to lay down and sunbathe, it's all right there. <laughs> the officer noted that Robinson appeared visibly intoxicated as she said. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you crack open a four local and you're hammered. <laughs> <laughs> as she said, she chose her attire because she was too lazy to put on any clothing. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. I could go with the red dress, eh, tank top and jeans. No. Oh, bath towel. Perfect. All right, here we go. Yeah, all right. Let's go down to the Dollar General. The, I'm obeying the sign. It only says no shirt, no shoes. That's right. <laughs> but I got a bath towel and some flip flops. I, I got a bath towel. I'm good. Yeah, I got a bath towel and skids. She's lucky it's. Uh, the new formula for local because the original formula <laughs> it would have her bouncing off the walls oh yeah the dollar general employee told the officer that a juvenile under 16 had witnessed a woman naked in the parking lot and recorded it on his cell phone and he came in and said dude best day ever <laughs> my parents used to find playboys in the, in the woods all the time we find this in the dollar general parking lot i found me a giselle under a towel <laughs> I'll raise you Gen Xers and your Playboys in the woods with a Giselle and a towel in a golden uh, uh, dollar store parking lot. Dude, smell my selfie. <laughs> you always want to see some redneck white trash? <laughs> Look at that right there. <laughs> That's some redneck white trash. <laughs> After after recording the alleged incident, the juvenile forwarded the footage to the employee. Oh, well, he was sharing. That's sharing is oh, caring. Man, I was working and I missed it. I got you, bro. I got you. I got you. Here it is. Uh, the officer called the juvenile's phone and his guardian answered and agreed to return to the store and speak with the officer. The officer wrote... The officer wrote he then met with both juveniles. That doesn't make sense. Who told who told him they saw Robinson leaving the nearby Circle K, walk over to them and ask them for a lighter. Oh, she needed a light. Uh, yeah. I see. Yeah, she, she didn't was, have pockets. 
Well, yeah. yeah. That's the one thing the bath towel doesn't have is pockets. So well, you're kind of you, down there. You can carry your marbles right there, right near the titties. So, <laughs> yeah. God's pocket. Yeah, God's pocket. Uh, when they hey, asked, at least the kid asked for his friend to, to text him the, the message instead of having his friend call in somebody to rob the Dollar General so he can go out and see the naked woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> see, that's a callback. That's, that's wonderful. Um. When they asked her why she wasn't wearing any clothing, she re- allegedly repeated, I was too lazy to put clothes on. It's, it's, it's a nice day. Four locals going down way too good. Yeah, I'm just too lazy. Honey, you want to light up my Marlboro for me? <laughs> the juvenile then began to record the incident on his cell phone, to which displayed the defendant exposing both her breast and genital area by dropping her towel to both juveniles. Oops, I dropped my towel. <laughs> Go ahead and take it while you got it, baby girl. Oh, you're filming this? Oops, my towel left. <laughs> Video surveillance footage of the encounter allegedly showed that as Robinson walked between the Circle K and the Dollar General, she repeatedly failed to cover her naked body. Well, of course. She had an audience. It's out, it's yeah. out there now. Yeah. Per the affidavit, she was unable to keep her towel on, resulting in her displaying her breasts in public, then walking out of the store towards the Dollar General, where the incident occurred. The Dollar General store then donated a white T-shirt and basketball shorts to Robinson so she wouldn't have to be processed wearing only the towel. So they're out four bucks. <laughs> yeah, there goes a, there goes the uh, best four bucks ever spent. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Robinson was booked into the Lake County Jail, where she's currently being held on $4,000 bond. Okay. Funny, no pockets to put the four grand in. <laughs> but yet two juveniles trying to pay her bail. We don't know why. What do you think? Do, do you want to see Miss Seven Head naked? <laughs> That's three more than a faux head. Yeah. I can't see her body, so I don't know. I'm judging by the face, nah, I'm good. No, you're good. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. Don't don't need to see her. Yeah. No. So there you go. That's it for dumb crime, stupid criminals. All right. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I'll just have to remember stay in my house when I'm walking around the towel drinking for loco. <laughs> <laughs> Bruisers out there. Hey boys, want to see some man meat? I think I'm going to do that today when Mrs. Bruiser gets home from work. Just walk out with the towel and for loco, and she's going to go. I'm not even talking to you. You and Tim are online. I know something. I know this is something to do with you too. She'll know right away. Hey, you want to take me down to the to the Dollar General store? Tim says I got to meet him at Dollar General. You want to go? I want to want to show off uh, the big bruiser to everybody. Show them what they're missing. Let's stop at Circle K first. Yeah. I want to see if they'll give me a shirt and a pair of shorts. Yeah, you either give them away for free. <laughs> that's that's the new thing to get a shirt and shorts and show up naked to places. <laughs> oh boy! All right, well that's uh, dumb crime, stupid criminals for today. Uh, Bruiser, what you got going on this weekend? I have my last two matches before surgery. I'm very excited. That's right. Yep, Mount Airy, Wisconsin, Mount Airy, North Carolina on Saturday. I'm in a barroom brawl match, and then on Sunday for AML Wrestling, their big show in Greensboro, North Carolina. Brian Malonis is coming in. The bonuses are getting back together one last time, and uh, I don't know if – I'm not saying this is my last match, 
But if you're in the area and you've never seen me wrestle and you want to, these are the two shows to come see because I don't know if I'll be back. There you go. Time. There you go. Because surgery is next week and I'm going to be laid up for a bit. So There you go. You have your surgery on what day? The, 20... the 29th. 29th. So there yep. you go. So everybody out there who's got the extra juju, put your prayers out there. Put your, your positive yes. energy out there for Bruiser on the 29th as he has his uh, surgery for his hip, to have his hip replaced. So, But I have been talking, like, we uh, Ron Simmons was on the show this last Saturday, and he's had his hip done, gave me some great advice. Yeah. And then uh, Robert Gibson on the Rock and Roll Express, he's having his hip done, so he gave me some advice. And it was just it's really cool when you – in the wrestling family, it's, it's you know, this Tim's, we all come together when someone's in need. And guys that have had the surgery giving me advice, guys that need the surgery giving me advice. And it's just really cool. I'm, I'm nervous, scared, excited all, all at once, but most of all, I'm content. I'm ready for it. I owe it to my family. I owe it to my friends. Yeah. I owe it to myself to not be, you know, to be pain-free. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. I mean, I'll still be in pain 24 years of abusing the body, but it won't be the crippling, you know, can't walk. Yeah. Pain. Yeah. Yeah. You deserve to be out of that pain and start to get and, some uh, sort of quality of life back. And uh, I'll have an update for everybody. You know, I'll miss obviously a couple tapings with you, but yeah. Yep. I'll keep you updated, of course, here on the list, and then uh, we'll yep. update the listeners when I get back. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, we're going to arrange to have either Mally or Jessica in in, uh, in Bruiser's absence as he recuperates from uh, surgery, and uh, and then when Bruiser is able, he'll come back and and, uh, and be part of the show again. So yep. there you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's what's going on. Um and this week, an exciting week of shows. Again, uh, we want to thank our guest for today, Maureen Boyle. Uh, and again, uh, an interesting book. We want to uh, we want you to go pick up that book of Maureen Boyle's. Uh, we have a link in the description of this program uh, to the to the book that is uh, out now. And again, you can find the the book "Child Last Seen: The Search for Patty Desmond" is the name of the book. I uh, encourage you to pick that up and read all about that. So that's out there right now. Uh, tomorrow on the show, Supernatural News on Darkness Radio. And then on Thursday, we've got the the uh, gang from ACG. We're going to talk a little bit of paranormal investigation. Uh, they're based. These are of, the uh, music guys, right? The yep, music group. They use music in their investigation. Uh, they're also led uh, by a lady named Nat. So we'll talk to... Uh, Nat and the entire gang. We have the entire gang on on uh, from ACG. Uh, they're like I said, based out of Illinois. Uh, they've been doing a lot of events lately. They've been uh, actually featured at a lot of events lately. So we're gonna get into their unique brand of investigation, paranormal investigation. I'm excited to have them on. So we're gonna play some of their EVP. We're gonna we're gonna talk to them about their investigations that they've done, and uh, gonna be a good time. So yeah, that's definitely. I'm very curious to hear their investigating methods. It's very intriguing. Yeah. So that's coming up on Thursday. So it's a busy week here at Darkness Radio. Again, if you have a guest that you'd like to hear, either on True Crime Tuesday or on Darkness Radio, just give me a shout. Tim at darknessradio.com. Uh, send me a link to the guest that you want to hear from, whether it be a, a website or whatnot. 
uh, way to get a hold of that guest and I will chase him down. I mean, not literally, I won't get all stalkerish or anything, but you know, I'll chase him down and <laughs> try to get him booked. Um, You're not going to drive past their mom's house? No, no, I'm not going to drive past their mom's <laughs> house or anything weird, but you know, I'll chase him down and we'll, we'll get him on the show. Uh, that'll do it for today for True Crime Tuesday. Thank you so much for tuning in, you guys. We'll see you again tomorrow for Darkness Radio. For Beer City Bruiser, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for listening to the best in true crime podcasting. This has been True Crime Tuesday. <laughs>